the words of Ecclesiastes 1.9 are quite true. There is nothing new mm. under the sun. Even Dante had to borrow from Greek myth to come yeah. up with his version of hell. There were people out there who believed all of this. Yeah. At some point or another, there were people who believed every detail. Every iteration, variation, and deviation from previously held beliefs had followers who believed them as literally true. So how did people deal with all this lunacy and disparity? Simple. They did then what we do now. They believed precisely what they wanted. And if someone didn't like the structure of things, they simply rewrote it and promoted their own versions. And anyone who liked that version simply adopted it. I can certainly see a lot of murmurings of the types of things that evangelicals like to say about hell within the confines of this particular story. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get unbound. Rivers, walls, realms, and halls. Every last version is crazy as balls. <laughs> sometimes it's happy, sometimes it's sad. But most of the time, it's just plain mad. I'm talking, of course, about the underworld. And you may or may not be surprised to learn that there are a lot of similarities across a lot of cultures and religions regarding what's waiting in the great beyond. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And we are starting out Unbound October with a discussion about the underworld. And before you ask, why on earth are you guys talking about this? Let me answer you plainly. As evangelicals, we are taught to believe a lot of things about a lot of things, and precious little of what we're told to believe about anything is actually true. Hmm. We're also taught to think in very concrete and black and white terms about everything. The underworld in mythology is a huge gray area, sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively, and understanding this concept and just what kind of clusterfuck it really is <laughs> should help you see just a little better how silly religious beliefs, all religious beliefs, actually are and just how vile Christian underworld traditions are in comparison to other classical cultures yeah. and mythologies. Now, as I mentioned last week, we are going to sort of kind of put the evangelicals at the kids' table for the month and just have a couple of fun discussions about things like this. So we're going to put Christians behaving badly on the back burner for a month. They'll be back in November, and I'm pretty sure that the grifters aren't going anywhere, the self-proclaimed prophets aren't going anywhere. Mm -mm. But, you know, for this month, let's just leave them to their fuckery and let's just have some fun with some mm -hmm. of these topics. Before we get into the meat of our discussion, I want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. For five bucks a month, that's just over a dollar an episode. You can really help us help other people get and stay unbound. If you don't have the money to spend right now, we get that and we understand. So like I say every week, tell someone new about the show this week. That's how podcasts get spread and that's how you're going to help us help other people get out of this religion that packages hate is love and love is hate. And I think it's important that we all do our part because they're out there evangelizing the world with all of their craziness and lunacy. We need to have counter voices and as many as we possibly can. 
there are loads and loads of atheist resources out there, atheist podcasts and whatnot. But who knows what this particular voice and this particular way of delivering this message is going to do for particular people. So if you know of anyone in particular who can benefit from what we have to say and you think would enjoy the show overall, just let them know that we're out there. And also, if you've never heard us before, if this is your first episode, welcome. We just want you to know that we're glad that you're here and that we hope you come back for more. You've got 81 more episodes to catch up on and all kinds of amazing topics that we've covered over now. It's getting close to two years. Yeah. Wow. And I just want to thank those of you who have been with us from the beginning because I know that we got plenty of listeners that have been coming back week after week for a long time. If any of you are out there and you're able to help us out, we could sure use it. But we also appreciate everything that you're doing with your five-star ratings, your good reviews, your mentions on social media, linking out to episodes that you like. All of that stuff really helps us out, too. So, again, patreon.com slash Network if you can help us out financially. And if not, all those other ways that I just mentioned are every bit as important, and we need your help in those areas, too. I also want to uh, promo what we're going to be doing next week because we've got Unbound October completely mapped out. Next week, we're going to be talking about a little subject called Satanism, which is something that the vast majority of evangelicals flat out don't understand. We've been told a lot of lies about what oh, yeah. Satanism is, and it is uh, just a little bit of a spoiler alert here. Yeah, it's a religion in name, but it's more of a philosophy and you'll be very, very surprised to learn what Satanism is. And you might even be even more surprised to learn what it's not right. based on what you've been taught. So come back next week for a really, really good discussion on that. But for right now, I want to dive right into the meat of our main topic and talk a little bit about the underworld from the perspective of several classical mythologies. Mm hmm. And also, at that point, I'm going to turn the mic over to Shell, who is going to talk to you a little bit about some of the Christian traditions mm. that have sprung up from this and just the insane differences that yeah. there are in the way that people before Christianity thought about this subject versus the way Christians want us to think about this subject. Right. So that's going to be coming up a little bit later. I'm going to dive right in by first explaining, since we already did an entire episode on hell, I'm not going to get into a lot of the specifics with this, but just so that we lay a good foundation here, the name hell appears a lot in mythology. The root of the word for hell is found in the Proto-Germanic language and is transliterated halo or haljo. I can't find a good pronunciation of that. I've, yeah. I've looked. H-A-L-J-O, which translates to concealed or hidden place. Nearly all Western iterations of the underworld share that particular commonality. And the names a lot of times are similar and have the same root. Hades, Hell with one L, which is the Norse underworld, and Sheol all have the same root. And other languages also use hidden place as at least a loose descriptor for what the underworld is. Now, note that it's just hidden. It's not specifically a place of torment, just a place to tuck away the dead so they don't mingle with the living. And, of course, there are loopholes to this rule, too. But Christian missionaries hijacked the word hell 
let's just put it right out there. They hijacked the word hell and gave it its reputation for being the home of Satan himself, which I'm sorry, it's not a proper name. It's a concept, but we are conditioned to believe that Satan was a being and not a concept. It took Christians to hijack this concept and turn it into a place of agonizing torment for any who don't believe in Christ as Lord. So again, we'll get a little bit more into how in a little while, but let's start off with a discussion about Norse mythology. I've got a couple of different sources here for the material that's in this episode. Uh, The section on Norse mythology comes from the website norsemythology.org. I figured that would be a pretty good source. Yeah. Um, Norse mythology is actually where we get the term hell because hell with one L is the name of the Norse underworld. It is sometimes referred to as Helheim or the realm of hell since it's literally presided over by a goddess of the same name. And the goddess hell, according to myth, is one bad bitch. She's tasked with keeping the dead in their place and she has help a cute, cuddly pooch named Garm or Garmer. He's described as a blood-stained, wolf-like dog who guards the gates of the underworld. Obviously, he takes his job pretty seriously. He protects from intruders breaching the gate and also stops people from escaping. Incidentally, his name means the Growler. That's really cute. cute. That's That's adorable, but it's not the most adorable dog name we're going to learn tonight. No. Um... There is said to be a journeying aspect to hell, just like in Greek and Egyptian mythologies. You have to work to get there and get in. Some accounts involve bribing or distracting Garmer by throwing chickens over the gate and either being granted passage or sneaking by. Mm. So basically what happens is you die, you wake up in hell, you get your bearings and get on with your afterlife. Of course, the name of the place is the only similarity between hell with one L and hell with two L's. I'm talking about the difference between the Norse underworld and the Christian hell. There is no clear reason why some go to hell and some to Valhalla or any of the other plethora of apparent post-mortem destinations that there are in Norse tradition. It's a far from black and white concept. Some believed that dying in battle was a ticket to Valhalla, but there are differences of opinion as to what goes on there and where Valhalla actually is. There are so many questions and so many conflicting statements about this. Mm -hmm. Then there's the belief that some hold that Freya herself handpicks some of the dead to reside in her hall, Folkvang, or the field of the people. I think... You know, I don't yeah. know for sure, but this sounds a lot like the Summerlands yeah. that we used to hear about in Wicca. And I think that might be part of the Celtic yeah. tradition. So, yeah, this is what that sounds like to me. The feel to the people, something really pretty, something that Freya has um, put together for her favoritest of favorite people yeah. after they die. But here's the thing. The vast majority of people in Norse mythology just go to hell. Yeah. That's their belief system is that everyone basically goes to the same place. There are also tellings of things like entire families residing together in the afterlife and having their own places, their own realms, halls, whatever, residing just beneath places where they lived 
or inhabiting places like underneath mountains and other tough to access locations, you know, kind of convenient. Yeah. So the answers to where people go after they die in Norse traditions are about as varied as the number of people there are to ask about it. It took a Christian, Snorri Sturlson, I swear by God and Sonny Jesus, that is his name, Snorri Sturlson. Sounds like a fucking Muppet. <laughs> um, let's start adulting here. It took a Christian, Snorri Sturlson, to whittle it down to the signature black and white concept of Valhalla versus hell. No actual Norse tradition breaks down the afterlife in this way. This is a Christian way of looking at it because all things Christian also have to be very black and white. Just look at it this way. Unless there's something super special about you, you're going to wind up in hell in this version of things. And hell, of course, is the least special and least luxurious of the possible afterlives. And people's entire eternities basically mirror the lives that they had. And they tend to do a lot of the same things they did in life. Only it now happens in hell. And here's just a little snippet from the Norse mythology website. Quote, what do the dead do in hell or the local variations thereof? They typically eat, drink, carouse, fight, sleep, practice magic, and generally do all of the things that living Viking age men and women did. Furthermore, while the underworld isn't described often in the sources, when it is, it's generally cast in neutral or even positive terms. As a place where the dead live on in some capacity, it's sometimes portrayed as a land of startlingly abundant life on the other side of death. Now, the only catch is that you can't leave. But it isn't awful. It's not an awful fate, okay? And it certainly isn't punishment. Think of hell in Norse terms as the low income to middle, middle class society of the afterlife. You have Section 8 over here, you have suburbia over there, and a smattering of off-grid pagany types just casting spells and minding their own business over their ways. Doesn't sound half bad, really. But apart from the fact that hell with one L and hell with two L's are both realms of the dead located beneath the ground, the two concepts have nothing in common. While the old Norse sources are far from clear on exactly how one ended up in one of the Norse afterlife realms rather than another, and there were several, what is clear is that where one goes after death isn't any kind of reward for moral behavior or pious belief or punishment for immoral behavior or impious belief. So the real question that a lot of Norse mythology scholars have posed over the years is with all of these various afterlives that people can experience in this particular structure and belief system, is it all hell? Well, here's what we know for sure about the Norse afterlife. This is what we've been able to piece together, what the experts have been able to piece together. There is no established criteria for who goes there. So you don't have to be saved from anything. Um, (laughs) The places themselves share a lot of similarities. Valhalla, for example, is framed as the warrior's afterlife and as a place to do what they do best, engage in continuous battle. I don't know if I was a warrior, I would want to go someplace where I would just be engaged in battle for eternity. But other sources also depict Valhalla as a place to rest from battle until Ragnarok. And that 
uh, Marvel has done a good job of putting this in the public view and, and people understand a little bit better what this is now than they did maybe five years ago. But basically, for those not in the know, Ragnarok is the Norse apocalypse that culminates with the defeat of the gods, a new earth, and a reboot of the earth and the human race. So the gods, I think, I'm pretty sure, are overtaken by the giants and that's oh, Ragnarok. Yeah, there's specific fights that happen and specific people kill other specific people. Right, right. So all of this has been quote-unquote foretold. Yes. So if you die in battle, you go to Valhalla and it's either a perpetual training ground for this or it's a place to rest until it's time for shit to go down. Yeah. Valhalla has also been described as existing underground Early sources put warriors in the underworld along with everybody else, just in different parts of hell. Right. And some of the earliest sources of Norse mythology don't even use the name Valhalla. Valhalla literally means Hall of the Fallen, and a hall could very easily be a place in hell. Right. Um, Valhalla and Valhalla are the same place, and the latter is located under big rocks and hills. Here's the, the whole thing with mountains again and hard-to-reach yeah. places. And some people think that Valhalla is actually part of Asgard. It seems to just honestly be another description of the same place. Right. With all the similarities in the way that it's described, it really does sound like it's just another part of the same basic place. So what's the verdict on this? In all honesty, it's all pretty individual and it has that your party kind of vibe in both concept and execution. You get the afterlife that most closely mirrors your mortal life. And it really does start to sound like the same concept tweaked for a more mass appeal. If you're too self-absorbed to think about yourself going to hell, there are other options for you to believe in. But you'll still go to the underworld and you'll have whatever afterlife your mortal life dictates. There's exactly one Old Norse poem that speaks of a place of punishment in the afterlife, and that is a place called Nestrand, or the Shore of Corpses. Its gates face north, poison drips from its ceiling, and snakes coil on its floor. This is Snorri Sturlson again, okay? And he cites this poem in his works, And it is clearly overflowing with Christian afterlife propaganda. And good luck finding someone who even knows about it these days. What have we learned here? Basically, Norse myth concerning the afterlife is very life of pie in nature. Choose the best story and run with it. And that's pretty much what they've done here. The changes that have happened over time and the simple choose your own adventure nature of this. That basically allows you to believe whatever you want is big in the Norse tradition. So, I mean, God, there is so much more to all of these, but we're just doing kind of a thumbnail sketch to get you to understand just how alike all of these stories are, how they all kind of borrow from each other and plagiarize from each other. The next one's going to be Greek mythology. And I had it in my head to do like five of these, like Norse, Greek, Roman, and a couple of others. But there are so many similarities between the Greek and Roman mythologies that i mean some of it just it looks like direct plagiarisms they they did they took a lot of stuff the romans especially took a lot of stuff from the greeks just renamed the gods 
Well, yeah, that's what I said. They, they plagiarized. Yep. And they just sort of borrowed a lot of details from yeah. each other. And that's that's why I said, you know what? I like the idea of the Greek mythology. And I think that some of this goes back to my Wicked days because a lot of the gods and goddesses that I related to came from the Greek pantheon. Hecate was a big one for me, but yeah. also also Hades. Hades showed up for me a few times in ritual space. Yeah. So I, it's weird talking about it in this in this way now. It just it, coming out of my mouth. It sounds so odd. Yeah. It's like you believe this. You actually believe this. That oh. Hades was in your ritual space. <laughs> it, it's laughable now, but. When you're in the thick of it, it's you're it's it's a dead serious sort of thing, especially right. when you're dealing with dark deities like Hecate and Hades and anything that's associated with the darker part of the mythology. But I have a specific affection for Greek mythology, so I wanted to definitely include them in the mix tonight. The source for a lot of the information in this section comes from GreekMythology.com. So here's what they have to say. Much of what we know about how ancient Greeks and Romans imagined the underworld, we know from Homer's Odyssey and Virgil's Aeneid. These two works are known works of fiction. They were never marketed as anything but fiction. Based on the mythologies that already existed, these aren't the oldest accounts of anything. They're just epic poems that were written by people who understood the mythology that existed at the time. And what it did is it just opened up this entire new world of things to believe in and <laughs> worlds to construct. So that's what happened. And the details from all of these get basically thrown into the same pot. And the soup that comes out of it is what we're going to discuss now. The author of the article on GreekMythology.com even says that the Odyssey and the Aeneid are often conflicting in their details. So sometimes we have to resort to assumptions to reconstruct the Greek underworld in its entirety. So here's what we know about the Greek underworld. And honestly, the name Hades is more the god who yeah. guards the underworld than it is the name of the underworld. But the name Hades is used as the name for this place quite a bit also. And here's what we know about it. And here's what the mythology tells us. It exists in the bowels of the earth. It's ruled by Hades and Persephone. It's a sunless place where literally everyone goes when they die. And it has a bunch of different attributes. It has three entrances. A cavern near the ancient town of Tenaris situated at the top of the middle promontory of Peloponnese, known back then as Cape Tenarium and called Cape Matapan today, the cave exists to this very day. It was through this cave that Heracles himself is said to have dragged Cerberus out of Hades and where Orpheus tried to bring Eurydice back to the world of the living. It's interesting how they choose real places. Yeah. Yeah, and and cool. tie these mythologies to them because obviously yeah. you can go to these places and you can confirm that none of this is literally true, right. which solidifies in my mind that no one ever meant for anyone to take this shit seriously to begin with. It was just a bunch of stories, but there were and still are people who base their notions of eternity on these things, even though the evidence against it is literally right before our right. eyes. Then 
there's another entrance known as the bottomless Alconian Lake at Lerna, guarded by the fearsome Hydra. Not that Hydra. Not Hail Hydra Hydra. Guarded by the fearsome Hydra. Now, the Alcyonian Lake was, I believe that's how it's pronounced, was supposedly used by Dionysus to enter the underworld and search for his mother, Semele. Some even say that Hades abducted Persephone in its very vicinity. Then there's the volcanic lake Avernus, located in southern Italy. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Near the city of Naples, Avernus was sometimes used as a synonym for the underworld in Roman times. It is through a cave found near this lake that Aeneas descends to the underworld in Virgil's Aeneid. The underworld in Greek mythology also has five rivers. The River of Styx, which is said to circle the underworld seven times. I'm trying to make a picture of that in my head, and it's odd, but I think I got it. Um, It's known as the River of Hatred and Unbreakable Oaths. So in some of the old myths, the gods would swear by the River Styx, and some of these oaths involved waters from the River Styx. We also know that it's the River Styx that Achilles is dipped into to make right. him invincible. So there's all kinds of mythology around the River Styx and around the rest too, but Styx plays prominently. Then there's Asheron, the River of Sorrow and Pain. It is described as being black and deep. Cossidus, the River of Lamentation and Wailing. Phlegathon, a river of fire that is believed to lead to Tartarus. I think we're going to pronounce this one Lethe. The river of oblivion and forgetfulness out of which the dead souls are obliged to drink so that they can forget their earthly lives in preparation for a possible reincarnation. Hmm. I look at this and I think about the Christian heaven because, I mean, you don't really have what anyone would consider to be an identity anymore in the Christian heaven. And it was the very first thing that I thought of was, right. was that concept of the loss and death of self that um, Christianity tells us that we're supposed to aspire to. But when you look at it in really any context, but especially this one, it has a very, very bleak context to it. At least I think it does. Yeah. Um, the one thing that is noteworthy about Hades, about this version of the afterlife, is that nothing about it is positive. The Greeks taught of an afterlife, but it's both miserable and not much of a respecter of persons. So over time, they had to kind of work a few more things into this too to make it just a little bit more palatable for the masses. Maybe it was because it had that air of hopelessness. Maybe it was to give some people comfort and instill a be-good-for-goodness-sake mentality in people. But at some point, the mythos of the afterlife in Greek mythology skewed into a more balanced structure that rewarded the good, punished the bad, and basically discarded or recycled anyone in the middle of the road. And that's where uh, the river of Lethe comes in. We discussed the entrance to Tartarus. So let's talk about the regions of the Greek afterlife, starting with Tartarus, which is the closest facsimile of hell in Christian terms that we're going to see in any of these myths. It's a place of punishment where basically all the bad people wind up. And this is uh, a couple of quotes along the way from the same source. In the Iliad, Zeus claims that Tartarus is as far beneath Hades as heaven is above earth, 
and that it is the deepest gulf beneath the earth, the gates whereof are of iron and the threshold of bronze. Tartarus eventually ended up housing the worst of perpetrators, destined here to eternally endure punishments fitting their earthly crimes. And considering how grisly some of those crimes were, mm. holy shit. Yeah. This, this is about the worst depiction of an afterlife that we get outside of Christianity. Um, and then here's the polar opposite of this, the Elysian Fields, which is a place where all the best people go based on various criteria. It's ruled by either Radamanthus or Cronus or, or both, depending on who you ask. And Elysium was said to be a land of eternal sunlight and rosy meadows. Again, that whole Summerlands yeah. kind of vibe. I found this one really, really weird. This is a weird interpretation of the afterlife. The fields of mourning for those who have been hurt by love. As we read in the Aeneid, the fields of mourning are reserved for the souls of those whom ruthless love did waste away. Here they wander in paths unseen or in the gloom of dark Myrtle Grove. Not even in death have they forgot their griefs of long ago. Curiously enough, almost all of the field's inhabitants mentioned by Virgil are women. Mm. So, yeah, this is an almost exclusive girls-only club for women who, I guess, died pining for their lost loves. I don't I know. But wow. it's uh, kind of a, a horrible thing, too, when you think about it. You know, either you're going to be tortured for all the bad things that you did wrong, or you're never going to get over your ex. <laughs> this, mm. that's, that is how I interpret that, basically. It makes a person, well, a woman specifically, <laughs> never want to fall in love. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Mm. The last of the uh, four regions of the Greek afterlife is called the Asphodel Meadows. And this is the most populated part of the underworld reserved for the regular people, basically. Mm. It's ruled by Achilles, who reportedly hates the job. In the Odyssey, he is reported to have this to say to Odysseus about the job. Quote, I would rather be a paid servant in a poor man's house and be above ground than king of kings among the dead. Unquote. People entering Asphodel Meadows are said to have to drink from the river Lethe to make them forget their mortal lives and identities and, again, prepare their souls for reincarnation. So basically, the message here is if you wind up in this part of the afterlife, you're eventually going to be told, go back and do better. Or worse, you know, whatever. We need to make space here, is mm -hmm. the point. That, to me, seems to be the sentiment about this particular scenario. It's like people go there to be recycled. The real interesting part of that, though, is that there isn't a redemption aspect to it. If you go back and you do worse and uh, you wind up in uh, Tartarus, mm. well, you're just there at that point. You're just there. You know, if every last one of your incarnations is wonderfully mediocre, you just keep coming back and coming back and coming back there and coming back until you are good enough or bad enough for something else. It's yeah. just, it's, it's also bad shit. Now, apparently there were some who didn't like the structure of things either. So if you don't like the idea of a sunless, dismal, eternally unpleasant Hades or the more judicious regional structure of the underworld pieced together from a couple of fictitious epic poems, just set your sights on Hesperides or the Isle of the Blessed, which is alleged to exist over the horizon of the Atlantic, which the ancient Greeks believed to go on and on into infinity because they didn't really have the means of being able to explore too much beyond their own shores. 
Um, this is a sort of dreamy, spirited away kind of afterlife experience that you are perfectly free to believe in if you want to. Hmm. And it's just a sweet, peaceful, easy feeling kind of way of looking at <laughs> what's going to happen when you die. So if this floats your boat, no pun intended, then that's what you believe in. And it becomes true by virtue of the fact that you believe it, just like any of this other shit. Um, one last little fact here. I've mentioned that the Greek underworld is my personal favorite, but not just for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, and not just because it's the subject of so many great stories, because it really is. It's a silly, laugh-worthy detail of the mythology, but this is what I've latched onto about this. Prepare yourself, okay, people? Hades, the fearsome ruler of the underworld, has at his control a three-headed dog named Cerberus, who... Basically, according to myth, allows one-way traffic into the underworld. You can get in. He'll let you in, but he won't let you back out. Um, the name Cerberus is interesting here because of what it means. The name is the Proto-Indo-European word Kerberos, meaning spotted. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. The ferocious three-headed dog that guards the Greek underworld is literally named Spot. And I think that that is like all kinds of awesome. Yes. Hades has a dog named Spot. And on that happy note about uh, Greek mythology, let's take a look at how the ancient Egyptians viewed the underworld in their mythology. The Egyptian underworld was more of a way station en route to the afterlife. It involved a series of tests culminating in a final judgment that would determine whether or not a soul would be allowed to live on for eternity or simply be devoured and die. There's no real heaven-hell dichotomy here. It's either heaven or lights out. And yes, there is tell of demons that inhabit the underworld, but they were painted more as observers or they were in charge of various tests that the soul had to pass to make it a step closer to judgment. Nothing in here about punishment, torment, or anything like that. Right. Your ultimate punishment here is that you cease to be. Right. which is everybody's fate anyway. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, either you get to live on or you don't. And there are even sects of Christianity that believe this, that there really is no such thing as hell. You can either believe in God and spend eternity in his presence, or you can choose not to believe in him and then just expire. But there's no real punishment involved with this. The Egyptian mythology does have a punishment aspect to the way that they look at this, but it's not an eternal ongoing thing that the person is aware of. They just cease to be, and that's that. The Egyptian underworld is known as the Duat. It's considered an underworld myth with the god Osiris as lord of the realm, but other gods live there too. Gods like Anubis, Thoth, Horus, Hathor, and Ma'at all of whose stories are very interesting reads if you ever have the chance to look into it a little bit. Management of the Greek and Norse underworlds seem very shoestring budget when weighed against the management team of the Duat. There's a lot of gods and demons involved in this operation. But after passing a series of trials and making its negative confession, that's found in Spell 125 in the Book of the Dead, or as the Hebrews referred to it, the Ten Commandments because they're almost identical, huh. or many parts of it are, are identical. Yeah. It was at that point that the soul faced its final judgment. So after defeating all the minor bosses, 
and mm-hmm. making this proclamation of innocence. I've never done all of the any of these bad things. Um, you get to face the final challenge, and that is the final battle of the heart versus Ma'at. And here's a little bit from the Wikipedia entry about the Duat. If the deceased was successfully able to pass various demons and challenges, then he or she would reach the weighing of the heart. In this ritual, the heart of the deceased was weighed by Anubis against the feather of Ma'at, which represents truth and justice. Any heart that is heavier than the feather failed the test and was rejected and eaten by Amit, the devourer of souls, and these people were denied existence after death in the Duat. So that's where the end comes for the quote-unquote bad people, or the people who just didn't really make the grade. So it wasn't even a matter of them being evil. It was just a matter of them being inadequate. The souls that were lighter than the feather would pass this most important test and would be allowed to travel toward Aru, the field of rushes, an ideal version of the world that they knew of in which they would plow, sow, and harvest abundant crops. If it's the ideal version of the world that they lived in, why the fuck do they still have to work? (laughs) That part I don't get. But I guess in this version of things, there's always a good crop. The weather's always good. It rains enough. And the soil is always fertile. I, I guess that's that's it. But I, I, I think it kind of sucks that in an ideal version of your world, you still have to fucking work. Yeah, right. And I also find it interesting how the field concept keeps coming up in all of these mythologies. The field of rushes, Elysian fields, the field of the people, many, many, many fields. involved in this and again the pastoral nature of that makes me think about the summerlands so you know it all kind of culminates into the same kind of concept so anything in the afterlife that involves fields it usually is a good place to be yes also from the wikipedia entry the geography of the duat is similar in outline to the world the egyptians knew there are realistic features like rivers Again, with the rivers, islands, fields, lakes, mounds, and caverns. But there were also fantastic lakes of fire. Gee, I wonder what that evolved into. Walls of iron and trees of turquoise. In the Book of Two Ways, a coffin text, there is even a map-like image of the Duat. Hmm. So someone's taken the time to even map this place out. Not that there aren't a bunch of nutters that have tried to map out hell either, because that exists too. Yes, it does. All I can think of with any of this is maps of places like Middle Earth or Westeros or your favorite D&D module. Why is it easy to see these things as fiction? But people take stuff like all of these crazy mythologies seriously. A lot of people take them seriously. Manipulating the weak-minded was a thing long before evangelicalism, and people have been buying all sorts of cons about life after death since our species was new. And here's just a little bit of proof, because I also decided to look into the Sumerian underworld, because if you want to get to the heart of the mythologies, then you start at the source. I took a quick look at the, it's actually called the the Mesopotamian underworld, as part of my research, but there is so much there that mirrors other traditions. I don't want to, I just, you know, I I wanted to bring it up because this is the original, but I don't want to take more time than I need to pouring over this. 
just to give you an idea of some of the similarities and where a lot of these other myths actually came from. Sumer is, in fact, the earliest known human civilization, so it stands to reason that they would have laid the framework for many of the other underworld myths. So here is some of that framework, some of the details that you find in Mesopotamian mythology. You've got god and goddess gatekeepers. You have other attendant gods with various duties, which is very Egyptian in the delivery there. You've got an underworld that's dark and dreary like Hades. You have gods inhabiting the realm for only parts of the year. I thought immediately of the whole Hades, Persephone, and Demeter thing, mm -hmm. where um, Persephone inhabits the underworld, but only for a certain part of the year. Right. So there's that story in its original form. The Mesopotamian underworld also has seven gates. So there's that concept. And it has a fully mapped out geography and also basically sends everybody to the same place. There's the, <laughs> same, the same afterlife destination for everyone with variations just like in all the rest. And there's even a precedent in the Mesopotamian mythology for the concept of indulgences where wealthy families would make offerings to the gods to basically bribe them into giving their departed loved ones special treatment in the afterlife. It's also pretty dry there. People in this particular underworld rely on their mortal loved ones to keep them hydrated. In a lot of cases back then, people's graves and tombs were built with these holes in them that were designed for people to pour water down so that these people could get a drink in the underworld because okay. there's no water there. Wow. That's, that's an interesting that little, really interesting. little thing. That's an interesting little detail about this particular mythology. So when you look at all of this stuff together, you start seeing how it's been borrowed and plagiarized and done over and over and over again in various ways and then all of the ways that it's kind of skewed off into different beliefs, kind of like the way that Christianity has skewed off into so many different denominations. Right. And, you know, if people don't like the rules in one way of thinking about something, then it's just in their nature to change it to suit their own likes, dislikes, comfort levels, etc. So this concept is as old as we are as people. Right. As long as people have been around, this is the kind of game that they've played with their spiritual beliefs. So I think that it's just an interesting way of looking at it. A real thumbnail sketch of several of the major mythologies that are out there and the ways that they're similar. And man, there are so many. And honestly, we've, we're, only, you know, we're only scratching the surface with right. this. This is one of those situations where you know, we're going to lay the framework. And if any of this sounds interesting to you, then you know, we recommend that you go out and research some of this more on your own because I think that it's important to understand how people in general think. Even when it comes to religion, even when it comes to any religion, I think it's important to understand how people over time have dealt with certain things. And death is a big one. Yeah. How people deal with the concept of death and how there are some out there that make it look terrible and how some out there take the concept of the afterlife and make it look terrible. And then there are some that take that same concept and make it look wonderful because at that point in time, that's what suited people's needs. People needed to believe in a slightly better afterlife, so they abandoned the idea of just Hades. 
right. and develop this much more intricate and involved afterlife that gives you a bunch of different outcomes as opposed to, you know, just being in this one dark, dismal place forever. And after a little while, they started adding other options. Yeah. And that's just one example. Um, I'm going to, at this point, hand things over to Shell to talk a little bit about a couple guys named Dante and Milton. Note how most of these underworld scenarios have a degree of dread, but very few involve perpetual endless punishment. I think there's only that one. Tartarus. I think that's only one yeah. that is a perpetual, never-ending punishment sort of scenario. The ancients at least had enough of a humanistic view of things to not split people into concrete factions of good right. and evil. For that, you need a religion rooted on tenets like love and forgiveness. So, <laughs> Shell, yeah. tell us what an underworld designed by Yahweh looks like. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm going to first cover Dante's Inferno. Uh, that's the first part of the Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri. And that, I believe, is one of the most complicated visions of hell I have ever come upon. Oh, there was thought that went into there this. There was a lot of thought. A lot of angry thought yes. that went into this. Yes. Dante's vision of hell is detailed and complex the punishments as just desserts as he could make them, as well as a little snark on the side. He often put people he didn't like into certain circles of hell he felt they belonged in. <laughs> I, I love that part of it. I know. I, it's I just absolutely like, love that part of it. You know, it's one thing to just look at somebody you like and, and tell them to go to hell. Yeah. It's quite another to sit there and concoct scenarios where you actually write them into this narrative. Yes, it he is. He had balls. Yeah. There was, he had something. In the poem, The Inferno, Dante is the explorer taken to see the vision of hell, and the philosopher Virgil is his guide. As they descend into the funnel of concentric circles of hell, the divisions of sins become complicated and specific, as do the punishments. They're very poetic punishment or poetic... Like poetic justice? Justice. Yes, poetic justice. That's what I wanted to say. They entered the vestibule of hell beneath the sign that mourns, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. There, Dante and his guide hear the anguished screams of the uncommitted. These are the souls of people in life who took no sides, the opportunists who are neither for good nor evil, but instead were merely concerned with themselves. With them are the outcast angels who never took a side in the war of heaven. These souls are forever unclassified. They are neither in hell nor out of it, but reside on the shores of the Acheron. Naked and futile, they race around through the mist in eternal pursuit of an elusive, wavering banner, symbolic of their pursuit of ever-shifting self-interest. This is such a happy, 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 happy place. Happy hell. It's, I mean, yes. I, I think about, and I know where it came from. I know precisely where this came from. Because the very first thing that I thought of was the whole concept of I'd rather you be hot or cold and not lukewarm. Right. So I'm seeing a lot of that sentiment yeah. going on here. There's well, a, if, you're, if you're lukewarm, then this is what's actually going to happen to you yes. after God spits you out of his mouth. Right. This is what happens. Yes. From there, they come to the river Asheron, where Sharon, the ferryman of hell, 
will bring them across to the circles of hell. Virgil proceeds to guide Dante through the nine circles of hell. The circles are concentric, representing a gradual increase in wickedness and culminating at the center of the earth where Satan is held in bondage. Dante the poet obtained three major categories of sin, as symbolized by the three beasts that Dante encounters in Canto One. These are incontinence, violence or bestiality, and fraud and malice. Incontinence just means you don't bother governing yourself. You just go around and party and be an idiot. Sinners punished for incontinence, also known as wantonness, the lustful, the gluttonous, the hoarders and wasters, and the wrathful and sullen. They all demonstrated weakness in controlling their appetites, desires, and natural urges. According to Aristotle's ethics, incontinence is less condemnable than malice or bestiality, and therefore these sinners are located in the four circles of upper hell. So there's an uptown and a downtown. There is an uptown and a downtown. Okay. And it just gets worse. Of course it does. Yes. These sinners endure lesser torments than do those consigned to lower hell located within the walls of the city of Dece. The deeper levels are organized into one circle for violence and two circles for fraud. As a Christian, Dante adds circle one to upper hell. Well, circle one is limbo to upper hell and circle six heresy to lower hell making nine circles in total, incorporating the vestibule of the feudal. This leads to hell containing 10 main divisions. This nine plus one equals 10 structure is also found within the Purgatorio and Paradiso. Lower hell is further subdivided. Circle seven, violence, is divided into three rings. Circle eight, which is fraud, is divided into 10 bolge. And circle nine, treachery, is divided into four regions. Thus, hell contains, in total, 24 divisions. This is enough to make your head explode. It is. And I've read this. Mm-hmm. I've, I've read this. It's actually really interesting when you read it. But when you, like, break it down into circles, it's like, oh, my God, this is making my head explode. It's kind of like in a high fantasy mm. series where you've got all of these glossaries and you've oh, got yeah. all of these lexicons and all of this stuff that explains what's going on in these worlds. And those are enough to make your head explode too, which is why I'm not that big a fan of high fantasy. Because no. Jesus fucking Christ, there's so much to remember. <laughs> there's so much reading to there's read. There's so much to piece together. Reading. And how do you keep it all straight? Oh, you, you know, yeah. The, the most... Um, the most impressive part of all of this is how he managed to keep all of this straight long enough to write what is basically a long-ass epic poem. Yes. Wrinkled in between all of this, there's commentary on Florentine society. He was very interested in the politics of Florence, Italy, where he wanted to reside, but he was in exile from. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. The first circle is what we call limbo the righteous pagans who did not choose Christ, and the unbaptized who could not choose Christ. Limbo shares many characteristics with the Asphodel Meadows, and thus the guiltless damned are punished by living in a deficient form of heaven. 
Yeah, you know, this is where the Catholics said that uh, mm. babies who weren't baptized would go. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember, I remember being told this, and, mm-hmm. you know, it terrifying me as a young child. It was absolutely terrifying to think yeah. that, you know, a baby who is, who basically is an innocent is going to go to this place where, I and mean, it doesn't sound like a fun or happy no. existence at all. And all because they weren't baptized. They have to go here because they carry original sin. Right. It's kind of fucked up. It really is. That's heaven and hell for you. Well, yeah, I mean, and any any Christian version of these things is going to be extra fucked up. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Circle two is the first of the circles of incontinence. This is for those who committed active, deliberately willed sin and those who were overcome by lust. Let's see. Circle three is for the gluttonous. They wallow in a vile, putrid slush produced by a ceaseless, foul, icy rain. A great storm of putrefaction. Oh, that's disgusting. Yes, it is. That's... that's and I ugh. cut some stuff out of that. Okay? Thank you. I did. Thank you. I can only imagine. <laughs> Circle four is greed. The people whose attitude towards material goods were not appropriate. These sins include the avaricious or miserly who hoarded possessions and the prodigal who squandered them. Including many, including many clergymen and, and popes and yeah, cardinals. Yeah. Oh, he was all about like putting various members and high church officers. In. So, so he wasn't really friendly to the Catholic church. No. And yet the Catholics he, took so much of their, yeah. of their folklore about this from here. But these were like scandalous people. They were known scandalous people. Mm-hmm. So I think everybody kind of knew, okay, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, circle five is for wrath. In the swampy, stinking waters of the River Styx, the fifth circle, the actively wrathful, fight each other viciously on the surface of the slime, while the sullen, the passively wrathful, lie beneath the water, withdrawn into a black sulkiness which can find no joy in God or man or the universe. This just keeps getting better and so, better and oh, better. It's going to get worse as you go down. That's why I say it's, it's shaped like a funnel. The deeper you go, the worse it gets. Yep. It's, it's crazy. Dante and Virgil cross the river Styx, and here they come to the city of Dis, surrounded by the Stygian marshes. Dis is one of the classical rulers of the underworld. Lower hell is contained within this city. Virgil and Dante are given difficulty entering the city, and they are harried by the fates and Medusa. Heaven sends an angel to touch the gates to allow them entry. I just, I find that amusing. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. It's just weird. And I, I love how the there's this commingling of this origin. It's, it's, it's like fan fiction. Yes. It's like Greek mythology this... fan fiction, but really, really, really involved. Yeah. Well, it's basically Bible fan fiction, if you really want to yeah. carry yeah, it out. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But, I mean... Medusa wasn't in the Bible. No, we're, we're talking. But there's, there's, there's a, there's a major fusion. It's of a crossover going on here. Yeah, it's a crossover fan fiction. Yeah, that you know what? That's the best. That's the best way to describe it. That, <laughs> totally. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Then they come to circle six for the heretics. In the sixth circle, the heretics are imprisoned in flaming tombs. Ouch. After this, it gets complicated. Wait, it's not complicated yet? No, it's not complicated yet. Well, we're at circle seven. Let's see what, what's waiting for us here. Circle seven. This circle is divided into three rings and contain the violent. Ring one is violence against neighbors. In the first round of the seventh circle, the murderers, war makers, plunderers, and tyrants are immersed in the Philagathon, a river of boiling blood and fire. Ring two is violence against self. This is the wood of the suicides. Those who died at their own hand are transformed into gnarled, thorny trees and then fed upon by harpies, hideous clawed birds with the faces of women. The trees are only permitted to speak when broken and bleeding. Jesus. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. This, it, his, his imagination was a little bit scary. Yeah. Ring three is violence against God, art, and nature. The third round of the seventh circle is a great plain of burning sand scorched by great flakes of flame falling slowly down from the sky, an image derived from the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. These include blasphemers, which is against God, sodomites against nature, and usurers against art. We're getting there, folks. We're getting there. Circle number eight. We are in circle number eight, but this is where it's divided into ten ditches. Jesus. It's not bad enough that he's got all these circles. I mean... Now he's got ditches. They're evil ditches. (laughs) Man. (laughs) This just keeps getting better. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Circle eight is fraud. Also called the Malbolges. Watched over by Geryon, the monster of fraud. This circle has ten ditches. I thought that was Robert Tilton. (laughs) He probably has the face of Robert Tilton. Without the horns. Without the horns. Steve Taylor again. (laughs) We better add that in. Yeah. This circle has ten ditches called Malbolge, meaning evil ditches. Each of these ditches contained those who committed a specific simple fraud. Oh my God, this is so many types of fraud. Okay, so the first ditch is for panderers and seducers. The second is for flatterers. Three is- I'm fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Three is for simoniacs. Four is for sorcerers. Five is for barriters. Six is for hypocrites. Seven for thieves. Eight for counselors of fraud. And nine is for sowers of discord. Ten is falsifiers. If this weren't enough, he divides falsifiers into four categories. Jesus. Alchemists, falsifying things. Impersonators, falsifying persons. Counterfeiters, falsifying money. Falsifying money, money. yeah. Perjurers, falsifying words. He had a lot of gripes he with had a, a lot, lot of people. He had a lot of gripes with a lot of people. And almost all of these, there's someone he knows. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> he had people in mind when he wrote this stuff. Yes, he did. That's even, that's even mean, scarier. Yes. This is pure sociopathy coming out of this guy's head and onto paper. He had a lot of frustrations. Yeah, you think? Yeah. And here is the ninth circle. Treachery. 
or cosidus. That's what it's called. Yeah. This is in four sections. Round one is Cana. This round is named after Cain, who killed his own brother in the first act of murder. This round houses the traitors to their kindred. Round two is Antonora. This second round is named after Antenor, a Trojan soldier who betrayed his city to the Greeks. Here lie the traitors to their country. Mm-hmm. Round three, Ptolemaea, the third region of Cassidus, is named after Ptolemy, who invited his father-in-law, Simon Maccabeus, and his sons to a banquet and then killed them. Nice guy. This is traitors to their guests. Mm-hmm. Round four, Judeca, the fourth division of Cassidus, named for Judas Iscariot, contains the traitors to their lords. And finally, Finally. at the center of hell is Satan, a monster trapped waist-deep in ice with three faces, a dark representation of the Trinity. So does Satan actually get to do anything? He is imprisoned. He's in prison, so all he can do is basically be pissed. Really, really pissed. But with absolutely nothing to do about it. There's absolutely nothing he can do about it. He is in prison down there. He's got his minions who take care of everything else, but he's under punishment. This version of hell, I guess, isn't necessarily completely on fire if he can remain encased in ice. No. No, a lot of this is not in fire. Like, there's a few places that are fire hell. Mm Mm-hmm. In the next poem, uh, Purgatorio, Dante comments that here it's so much brighter because the purgatory is temporary, but the inferno is forever. So with this absolute onslaught yeah. <laughs> of information yes. about this, let's round things out yeah. and talk just a little bit about how this whole underworld thing pans out with yeah. Paradise Lost. Right. Okay, full disclosure here. I have never read Paradise Lost or been much interested in reading it, but now I'm reading more about it. It sounds really interesting. Where Dante is over-decorated, Milton is minimal. Milton lets Satan steal the show for a good while in his poem. He writes him as an anti-hero, and he himself started to become worried at how sympathetic he seemed as the poem went on, but we open on Satan face down in a lake of fire and hell, along with his fellow angels. They eventually start to rise, and Milton describes the ranks of Satan's army and his rousing speech to them, which describes a prophecy of man and a new world. We are told about the fallen angels as individual militaristic figures and their response to their leader. Satan speaks compellingly. He is charismatic and uses powerful rhetoric. We begin to build up a sympathetic picture of an appealing Satan. The close of book one sees the building of the palace, pandemonium, and the preparations for a council of hell. Lovely. So, you know, basically... There is a lake of fire there, but they were able to get up and move around. They don't really describe the surroundings. So they can swim in the lake of fire and then come Probably out when not. they want to? But they, they're just sort of like face down in a lake of fire after being cast out of heaven. Yeah. So they get up eventually. So that, because that's where the scene is set. Yes. Satan and a third of all heaven have been cast out. Yes. This is where they wind up and go. Yes. All right. I'm not going to have a lot to say about this because it's so simple right yeah 
Um, But Satan sits on a throne and talks about how, being united in misery, the devils can and should be in complete and democratic agreement. He asks the assembly what they should do to fight and frustrate the will of God. Kind of like this guy. In the end, I mean, they do have like an argument because, of course, I mean, they're beings. They might not be human beings, but they're still beings and they're going to disagree. Right. So they're all arguing, and then in the end, Satan decides he needs to explore, and so goes to the gates of hell. Sin and death guard these gates, and though they were admonished not to let him out, they open their gates anyway. Outside of them is a great ocean of chaos, where the dark materials of God's creation reside. Chaos greets him and directs him towards earth. So, you know, one of the things that I have gleaned from the whole thing with Dante's Inferno is that even the worst comeuppance in any of the ancient mythologies pales in comparison to what Jesus is going to do to you if you don't start fucking worshipping him. Yes. Because honestly that's what most of this comes down to is that these were non-believers on various levels and these were the bad things that they did and I can certainly see a lot of murmurings of the types of things that evangelicals like to say about hell. Oh, yeah. Within the confines of this particular story. But another thing that impressed upon me as I was putting all of this together and reading your notes and everything about this particular episode is that even looking back, literal millennia in history, the words of Ecclesiastes 1.9 are quite true. There is nothing new mm. under the sun. Even Dante had to borrow from Greek myth to come yeah. up with his version of hell. I mean, all the different traditions borrowed and plagiarized their way to their own better story in right. true life of pie fashion. And that's all any of this was. Ever-changing, ever-evolving, expanding, embellished, and generally fantastical. But the point is that people have always had vivid imaginations as well as a fascination with death. And those two things together culminate to produce everything that we talked about tonight. But let's try to keep this one important detail in mind. There were people out there who believed all of this. At some point or another, there were people who believed every detail. Every iteration, variation, and deviation from previously held beliefs had followers who believed them as literally true. So how did people deal with all this lunacy and disparity? Simple. They did then what we do now. They believed precisely what they wanted. It really is that simple. And if someone didn't like the structure of things, they simply rewrote it and promoted their own versions. And anyone who liked that version simply adopted it. With no proof or evidence of any one story having validity over another, it was easy to just sell a new story or amend the ones that already existed. And since all religion is rooted in myth, this same concept is alive and well today. The biblical description of heaven is not pleasant either. It's all about subservience to a narcissistic God, leaving your identity and any sense of purpose behind, and simply being a mindless automaton that exists to do nothing but stroke Yahweh's ego for all eternity. Well, that's not very fun. So let's tell people tall tales about things like reuniting with loved ones and heaven that includes various experiences and indulgences that the Bible never mentions, promises, or guarantees. As I've said many times before, 
People everywhere are very similar and very predictable. We will always opt for the best story. Sometimes we'll even steal the best story when it comes to our own comfort and need for peace and reassurance. For Christians, that even extends to making all manner of excuses that let their clearly unsaved loved ones escape hell. I heard this one many, many times. Oh, the excuses that people will make and the loopholes they'll try to apply. Modern pastors tend to just play along, almost never affirming that anyone goes to hell, even if he knows that person wasn't quote-unquote saved. I don't think I've ever been in a situation where a pastor was eulogizing someone and talking about them being in hell. And I never heard that. There was always some loophole that was applied. The Catholic Church took it a step further in the Middle Ages, of course, selling indulgences to make people's afterlives more palatable. And, you know, they they had their, their source material for that concept, too. In all these cases, though, the message is the same. Believe what you want. It's all horse shit. And once you get okay with that, you start getting more okay with the notion that death is just death, that it won't bother you when it happens, and that the finality of death is the best case scenario given all the options out there. You know, there were precious few examples of afterlives that we talked about tonight that, um, that exist within the structures of these various underworlds that I would even want to have any part of, you yeah. know? In most of these cases, just out-and-out death and non-existence is kind of the preferred scenario. But when you get to that point, when you get to the point of being okay with having a beginning and an end, without having to have all of this stuff thrown into the mix, when you get to that point, you stop being afraid of dying and just get on with the task of living, like we've said many times before on this show. And when you get there, it's also a clear sign that you, as an individual, are at least on your way to getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.